right, everyone. Welcome back to Man Bites Pod. Um, it's my week, and I'm going to talk about the 1989 film Parents. I'm really excited about it. This film was directed by Bob Balaban and written by this guy, Christopher Hathorne. Uh, first off, though, I want to say hello to the commander. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Got my second COVID shot today. I'm uh, maybe a little worn out from it, but I'm still excited to talk about this fucking movie. Nice. And how how are you doing, my good friend, Baron? Oh, well, you know, the reverend life is like a baked potato, be it hot and buttery or burnt black to a cinder. It is what it is. Nice. Love the alliteration there. Well, uh... I'm excited to talk to both of you guys right now because this is one of my favorite, favorite cannibal films. And it's not really your typical cannibal films. You got your Italian cannibal films. You got your Dahmer-esque Silence of the Lamb cannibal films. But this film is about a seemingly well-to-do American family that opens up on an Oldsmobile, a big, bright, teal oldsmobile and uh it first you might think that this is actually just an oldsmobile commercial but then across the street parents were introduced to our main characters fucking played by randy quaid you may know him as cousin eddie mary beth hurt shitter's full <laughs> <laughs> I like to think that this uh, this version of Crazy Cousin Eddie is like a prequel to all the vacation films. Like, this is what happened before he lost his shit. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. That just got me thinking now. Wait a minute. So, wait a minute. Is, is the son Eddie? I know his name's Michael, but still. Could have changed his name. He's getting away from cannibals here. Could have. I don't know. That type of trauma could make a crazy cousin Eddie. It, it definitely could. So you got <laughs> Randy Quaid as fucking Nick. You got Mary Beth Hurt as Lily. And you got their little boy, Michael, is played by Brian Medorsky. This guy was never in anything else. This little kid that we're talking about here he was never in anything else. I've tried to find him. He may be a financial consultant, but... I don't know. Yeah, he disappeared. That's all he ever did. Yeah. So uh, we open up. They're moving into their new town. The dad, Nick, says, hey, you know, Michael, maybe you can make some new friends. Lots of new opportunities. And they unload into this big, beautiful, fucking postmodern furniture, wonderful suburbanite 60s culture home but it's all a facade because they're cannibals dun, 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 dun. <laughs> um it's pretty much alluded to throughout the film through the shots of them unloading a bunch of frozen food even though they're moving in all the cooking utensils the main Focal point. The kitchen is almost a character of itself in this film. So okay. they unload the car, 
They're having their fish dinner. Michael's like, what are we eating? Well, we're having leftovers. He doesn't want to eat. You know, Randy Quaid, Cousin Eddie gets really pissed off about this. He's like, hey, <laughs> I know you want to go to bed because it's dark in there. You like the dark, don't you, Michael? But the one dark place we have to worry the most about is right here in our minds. Fucking creepy as shit. Like, I'm so glad that I will not be this dad to my son or my dad was like this to me. This seems like this messed up this kid because he's having some bad dreams where he's jumping into pools of blood. The creep factor in this movie is so heavy. I mean, because this is not a gore. I mean, there's some gore, but it's not you know, it's not Fulci gore. It's not Romero. It's, it's, you know what I mean? It's, it's not saw. This is a fuck. It's, it's, it's banks. It banks on the creepy factor. And God damn it. If, if, if Randy Quaid and Mary Beth Hurt don't nail the creepy factor, quite honestly, that being said, this kid, Brian Madorsky, he's never been in anything. He's the worst actor in the whole movie, but his seeming indifference to everything makes it more creepy. I don't know. It's so bad. I don't know if it was a conscious decision or not. It seems like it was a conscious decision to, to me. You know, I, I think it. they needed an indifferent kid and they tried to get that kid to like just be as blank as possible. I think that is the direction he was given. I don't think he's like a phenomenal actor and they like pulled off this facade. It's just they were like, hey, kid, just act really bored. You're on a set for fucking three hours, you know, like so it's this creepy factor is so intense and he's having these dreams at night. He starts school the next day. He um, starts school on the same day as his new friend, Sheila, who is actually a year older than everyone because she got held back. But the teacher says, hey, why don't you all tell the class something new? And uh, Michael proceeds to tell the class that if you kill a cat in the graveyard and then you skin it, and then you boil the blood, you can be invisible. This freaks out everyone, and then they have the new guidance counselor come into the class, and she says, let's all draw pictures of our family. That'll come up later. He goes home that night, and he tells his parents that his new friend Sheila is from Mars, which is what Sheila had told him. So, I mean, in his defense, that is exactly what had happened to him at school that day. Michael's not a liar, man. No. Randy Quaid gets fucking pissed about this shit, though, and he's like, you're not eating your meat. He just wants to know why they're leftovers. What were they before they were leftovers? They were leftovers to be. Exactly. (laughs) So, um, Michael goes to bed. He has this hard time sleeping. He gets up in the middle of the night, comes out, Mommy and daddy are fucking in a pile of blood. (laughs) Cut to the counselor finding his picture of the horrible family Michael is envisioned with his color crayons and black and red all over the entire page, which I don't see how she could not have seen that 
off of the entire pile that she has. Like, oh, this one's entirely colored in red, you know. But she does make the decision that she needs to talk to these parents. And Mary Beth fucking pulls this role off so much as the disattached, perfect housewife. She's taking care of her son, but she can't describe the relationship that her son and her husband have. They do plenty of things together. Many things. Many things. Just many things. Many, (laughs) many things. That's what she would have to say. Um, at this point, there's the scene where Michael's dad has his new job and the new boss is actually Sheila's fucking dad. So they come over to Michael's house and they're all having dinner. They're all playing cards and... There's a lot of sexual innuendos going on and stuff. Uh, which point Sheila asks, what do you do, know about what your dad does? My dad does all kinds of crazy stuff. That's why we were from Mars. So Michael decides that he needs to follow his dad to work. Follows his dad to work where he watches his dad cut off pieces of the corpses. The corpses that they serve for dinner that night. This shit really starts to fucking escalate. He goes to his counselor, who is a chain-smoking crazy lady. But she wants to help this kid, and she's like, you're just imagining these things. You're imagining these things. She takes him home and is like, show me where this problem was. And he takes her to the basement and shows her a fucking corpse because they're fucking cannibals and there's a corpse in the goddamn basement. Mom comes home, she takes care of the situation like a goddamn pro, right? Then dad comes home later and they're all sitting around a spinning fucking dinner table having counselor, obviously. Uh, Randy Quaid's pissed. Michaels tries to attack him with a knife. Randy Quaid decides that he's going to kill his son. Mary Beth decides, hey, I'm not going to let you do that. Violence ensues to the point that the mom gets murdered and Randy Quaid chases Michael down into the basement and finds him and gets pushed in front of this falling wall of wine and finally gets taken out as the house burst into fucking flames and shit. Very dramatic. It seems like that's going to be the end of the movie. But then Michael goes to live with his grandparents. And they're all sweet, tucking them in and shit. Big old smiles on their faces. Was she going to live by the bedside? Here's a big glass of milk in case you get thirsty in the middle of the night. And a huge roast beef sandwich that's obviously people. And the cannibalism fucking continues. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) I fucking love this film. It's dripping with social commentary. Uh, Randy Quaid is literally one of the creepiest motherfucking dads I've ever seen portrayed. Uh, And the cannibalism aspect of this film is really what makes it golden. You know, it's like they're consumers, but they're consuming other people. They're consuming the society around them. 
you know, and it's very Pleasantville before Pleasantville. And the fact that it's so off kilter and so offsetting with the spinning deep dinner table, all the cooking scenes, the sausage that comes alive and tries to choke Michael in the foyer. These are all like little nods to them being consumers and devouring society around them um, just to fit in. And I don't know if that was his original intent, but it's well, well done and portrayed in this glorious way that not many cannibalism films are this intelligent, even though it's completely fake. And, you know, it, it's, you don't relate to these characters the way that you would relate to Clarice talking to a cannibal. That's the cannibal we see, you know? And so this is a new take on a cannibalism film that is absolutely blown out of the water. Um, the fucking insane thing about this entire thing is that Christopher Hawthorne was working in an office job and met Bob Balaban, the director, on a plane and fucking Hollywood pitched this guy. And this is one of Bob Balaban's only fucking films. He does a bunch of TV episodes. He's an actor and stuff. He's in a few different things. Nothing hugely that even worse mentioning on this, but if they would not have had this pitch on a plane about American consumerism and cannibalism, we want to have this beautiful film. And I really appreciate it a lot. What do you, what do you guys think? What do you think uh, there, Baron? I really liked it uh, there, Reverend. I was um, very surprised. Uh, not surprised is in the right word. It wasn't what I was expecting, uh, the level of creepiness. Um, I, was, I was taken aback. I was struck by it, absolutely. Um, you are right, definitely, you know, um, 60s America, like, uh, you know, John Kellogg's America, definitely to a T. And... Uh, Randy Quaid, phenomenal. Definitely one of the best creepy dad roles, or if not the best creepy dad role that I have seen. Um, the mother was great as well. But I do want to touch back on the on the um, the son as well. I'm not sure if it was intentional or it was just a happy merging of all the uh, elements, all the ideas in pre-production. Um, because the kid suffers from nightmares a lot. He's in a state of a waking dream throughout this movie. He's unsure if what he's seeing is real or not. Um, like when he first sees his parents having sex, he sees uh, lipstick smeared over their faces. It's later on that you uh, it's revealed that he actually sees them covered in the blood of other human beings. Their, their, whole, body, yeah. their whole body. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so his um, his uh, condition, uh, whatever you want to call it, waking dream state, living in a state of perpetual nightmare, um, is slowly revealed throughout the film. And uh, for me, I can see a young child just reacting and behaving in that way, uh, suffering that condition, living within that type of environment, definitely. Not to get too you know, psychoanalytical on it. Uh, whether it be a happy accident or not, I really enjoyed the, uh, the character of the child and how it was portrayed as well, definitely. Sure. I mean, part of, part of that, to touch on that, is, I mean, the, 
you don't see it at first. At first, it looks like they're the parents are just trying to look after this kid. It's, it's you know, he's a little awkward. You start to see that they are forcing him to go to bed. The father clearly wants to bring him into the fold and be like, listen, man, this kid needs to eat his meat. He needs to be like us because we are we know that we are outside of society. We know that we are we are outside of moral norms. And this kid needs to come on board or we're going to have to get rid of him. I mean, that's really the way I read that. And Mm -hmm. the mother is clearly she's ma. She's trying to be like, no, 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 no. Just send him to bed. She treats him like he's a sick kid. Just sends him to bed. Right. And then the father tries to have these discussions with him. When he, when the, when the kid doesn't even rebel, he just has kind of some issues and questions about things. The father doesn't beat him. He's it's not that it's not that on the nose. It's more subtle. He decides he's going to frighten him. He increases the nightmare fuel. Yes. It's like literally psychological warfare that he's waging on his own son. It's, it's insane. Abuse. It's flat out abuse. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. psychological abuse. He's doing it. It's very purposeful and you can see it. And, and the way they did it was really perfect because it looks like this is just 1950s suburbia. This is how parents talk to their kids. I mean, my fucking father talked to me this way. Right, um, right. You know what I mean? But it's it's not okay. <laughs> But it was something very real and very prevalent. And for them to make a weird horror movie one-off type of thing, because that's the whole thing about the airplane is that this guy fucking the screenwriter went on and has like a movie about a cat and four other films. But Bob Balaban has been on like a bunch of different TV episodes and different acting jobs for years. But this is the one horror thing that he really ever did, especially the only horror film feature league film that he directed you know um and randy quaid's not really known for doing horror either either but he is exceptionally creepy as fucking yes he's also a lunatic in real life so uh, that's what i'm gonna say is that this is probably the closest to randy quaid that we're ever gonna get in a fucking theatrical release you know it's um it's this one time that this could have happened that I love this. Just like when we talked about Cannibal the Musical, that was their initial foray into something. There's only the one time they could have done that. There's only the one time they could have done this Cannibal film as well. Right. This and is a uniform. This is a Yeah. It is something that uh, seems to unite the Cannibal genre because it's not like it could really remake cannibal holocaust nowadays either fuck no you could never make that movie now i mean i guess you could you could remake that you could make it but no one's gonna buy it yeah the the stigma the stigma around movies like that doesn't exist like it used to satanic panic is over the 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 mcmartin preschool trials are over like that that shit's not happening so you can't you can't frighten people in that type of real way. You can, but not real fans. You know what I mean? Mm. People like us are too well-versed in this. We're not going to be fooled. Some dickhead in, in Kansas is going to fall for it. Some, some fucking white bread goofball that's, you know, believes in all of these things that they see on Dateline, they're going to buy it. But yeah. 
motherfuckers that watch this shit forever, we're never going to fall for it again. Yeah. Yeah, there's no way that this could ever have been done in any other time period. I feel like it should definitely get more recognition than it does. Yeah. Uh, it only gets like 60% on fucking IMDb and I think even less on Rotten Tomatoes. But I, saw I, that. I that blows me away, man. Yeah, I feel like that. it should really be well known. Um, it, it was definitely one of the early films that I had seen in my horror watching experience. So I saw this pretty fucking young. But uh, I love it. But I think we need to talk about who the fuck's going to win in a fist fight. All right. Hit me. So we got the guidance counselor who, you know, well, let's do best bit of, bit of violence first. Okay. You want to give, give me some best bit of violence? Let's, let's start with you, Baron. Baron. Certainly, certainly. Um now, the violence is suggested throughout as is the gore, certainly that adds to the creepiness. Uh, and now the counsellor, Millie Jew, or Mill Jew, a play on being uh, damp, old, dusty as well, that was intentional, uh, played very well. Now, she, as you pointed out there, she, you know, she comes home, she finds the uh, corpse downstairs in the wine cellar, uh, she runs back upstairs. People are coming home. She goes into the the pantry, yeah, where the son was being strangled by sausages in one of his waking dream moments. Yeah. Um, and then the father is, uh, is trying to stab her with a knife. Now, we're playing on the kind of whole kitschy, uh, you know, Americana 1950s slash 60s uh, feeling and tone of it all. When the knife is coming through. She's not screaming out loud in panic or anything like that. Um, she's just, and she's not calm, but she's just dealing with the situation as it comes, which pretty much this whole film has that whole facade to it. And she even grabs the knife blade at this point of time. Yeah. I'm not sure what she's trying to achieve, but again, she does not scream out in pain or anything like that. She just deals with it and goes to the, you know, the next, uh, point of the situation to deal with the whole thing and yeah. yeah and so that really encapsulated the whole strange approach to the whole film in terms of violence in terms of the characters and just the whole way the film was constructed that is definitely my better violence my favorite bit of violence for this film specifically nice. the, the grabbing the knife bit or well, the, the, whole the, the whole the whole scene within the pantry uh high uh, definitely highlighted the, the high point of that scene being the grabbing of the knife yeah fair enough um what about I, you man i got i mean you know i mean a lot of times people equate well what you, violence has to be this person does that to that person I don't personally think that's always true. Like when we talked about Cannibal the Musical, we talked about the the pus shooting from from the Cyclops' eye. Uh, that's that's violence. You know what I mean? That's that's right. cool. So that counts, right? I uh, honestly, my favorite thing is the hand in the disposal. It's uh, I, that that's one of the first things you see that's outward gore. That's also still done in this creepy fugue state that. That uh, are that our man Michael is in, you know. I think that he sees that, and then right after that, the fridge starts bleeding, and then he realizes, oh, the shit's gone wrong, and he tart- he fucking turns tail. But the hand in the disposal 
that was that actually kind of when I first saw this movie, I went, holy shit. So I have to give it for that. That shit's amazing. And I honestly think that was good makeup, too. It's obvious yeah. how they did it. Like, I can see behind the curtain. I know what the magician's doing with the cards. But still, it's it's brilliant. I love it, man. Nice. nice. You know, honestly, and I will probably only try to do this this one time, is I got to say even more than the any violence in this film, I love the scenes of the mom and dad just barbecuing. Just standing yeah. in front of that goddamn mm-hmm. barbecue mm-hmm. with all the victims. You know that those are all victims. And they're just smiling and flipping the meat. And it, it portrays this goddamn carnivore, cannibalistic fucking consumerism in the, the spice ultimate shaker. Way. The spice shaker on a stick still gets me yeah. every time I see it. I'm yeah, like, that's yeah. great. That was great. <laughs> it's glorious, dude. <laughs> That being said, let's get in a fist fight now. I'm going to go with, uh, I may have to, yeah, the counselor or the boss? Counselor or the boss. Or Nick's um, boss. Yeah. What's her? What's his name? Um, Zellerman or something like that? Yeah, Mr. Zellerman. Um, Zellner, sorry. Zellner. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm, that's a good one. And I take. You know what's honestly holding me back? Um, I mean, I want, I honestly immediately want to say the counselor, the social worker. You're talking about the social worker, right? Yeah, the social worker, the chain smoker. Yeah, Yeah, but that's what gets me is that she's a fucking chain smoker. She has trouble getting up those stairs later on. And I'm pretty, they don't do a good job of showing it, but I'm pretty sure she's having trouble getting up those stairs because she is constantly smoking cigarettes. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah, I agree so with that. Here's yeah, the definitely. thing. I think she's probably tougher. But if she doesn't get those first two shots to count, she's gassed. It's over. She's going to lose that fucking fight, man. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, but I really do. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a fight. I'm going to weigh in. I'm straight up. I'm going to say the social worker wins because I think that adrenaline kicks in, she thugs it out, and she throws up afterwards because her lungs couldn't take it. But that dude, Zellner, that dude's soft as baby shit. That guy's a pussy, dude. He yeah. is made of pussy, that guy. So Ooh. there's no way she loses that fight. No fucking way. All right, how about you, Baron? Yeah, the uh, commander made some good points there, definitely. He is... Uh very very soft as a marshmallow there he's even sucking up to randy quaid randy quaid may as well have may as well be the boss of texaco uh throughout this whole film yeah that's um, the thing is that randy's not the boss the other guy's the boss yeah yeah you know, exactly exactly yeah randy quaid uh, is calling the shots Absolutely, absolutely calling the shots. Uh, the adrenaline is a good point as well because that kind of justifies maybe why she didn't scream out in pain with the knife. She was in the pantry as well, that she was, you know, oh. adrenaline makes you do crazy things and, uh, you know, pay pain and whatnot is not an issue in those moments she would throw up afterwards definitely and then have another cigarette or maybe six but i am giving it to uh to, to millie Jew, millie Jew, the social worker definitely and look but like that's the other thing like you, that's a great point that you brought up the, the the bit in the cabinet she's not shook that whole time yeah she's not she's yeah. not worried on any level she's just like okay i'm like you said she's dealing with the situation 
there's no way I'm in a cabinet getting stabbed at. I mean, I either it's fight or flight, but if you can't run away, you, the, the only thing you do is freeze at that point. She doesn't do that. She, no, she tries to yeah. actively fight back. And when she grabs onto that knife, she takes it like a champ. Like yeah. that's, a, that's a tough broad, man. She worked in the inner cities before. She's fucking, she's heavy. That's yeah, why she smokes so fucking much, man. She's stressed yeah. out. She's seen some shit. <clears throat> All right. So we got, we got two for Millie here. I am going to say then, because no matter what I say, Millie's going to win. I'm going to say that these two characters get into the ring. All right. And uh, Mr. Zellner knows that he is going to lose. There's just no way he's going to be able to take this woman. She's obviously the superior being. But he's sly as a fox, almost a weasel. He starts flirting he's, with her. He's they a start fucking batting eyes at each other because you know that there's a lot of sexual connotations in these films. They start batting eyes at each other. Mr. Weldner, he takes, uh, he takes her home, he takes Millie home for the evening. They share a night of passionate lovemaking. But then he promptly ghosts her for the rest, all ignoring all calls. This drives Millie into a deep depression where she uh, actually ODs on uh, sleeping pills, making, I guess, Mr. Zellner the, the victor. But it doesn't matter because you guys both voted for Millie. So Millie's the winner. Woo! Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait, that's... First of all, I rem- I remain to I-, I think that if if two of us say da 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 da, da the other one can still make a case and convince us otherwise. Yeah. But yeah, all yeah. you told me was that he challenged her pussy to a fight and that's how he won. Stop it. That's not even a good argument, man. All right, all right it's fucking all right. It's, you, it's unanimous then. It's unanimous. It's no. <laughs> all right. Millie do moves on to the next round. And I think we're going to talk and we've got some plans. Uh, we're going to put together a bracket at some point here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, love it. Millie do moves along and bangs on Zellner quite literally. It seems. Um, yeah. In where both we ways. Go, In both where do we ways. go from you here? Know what? Fuck those sleeping pills. Fuck those sleeping pills. She wakes up and she's tired of him fucking ghosting her. She goes and fucking caps his ass. <laughs> In front of his wife and fucking Sheila. Fuck that shit. Let's make even a darker picture on this film. Uh, <laughs> you know, do you want to rate this? Do you guys want to give this some type of a rating? Yes, and I, I want to say something. This is this is just musician like me being married to a composer, music nerd shit. I love what they did with the music in this movie. Yes. Um, yeah. Every time they're in the kitchen, there's some fucking 1950s white bread type Cuban shit going on. It's it's cute. It's it's very it's very Latin flavored, but it's accessible to white people type shit that's played in the in the kitchen. And yeah. then during the dream sequences, you have the really the minor chord fucking, you know, dark, grim stuff. And then you have other parts. When you're in certain parts of the house, you hear different parts, types of music. And there's not an exception to it. 
And if I'm, I'm sure I'm not mistaken in saying this, in the fugue state, uh, the grim minor chord uh, music is provided by none other than Angelo Badamenti. I, I think you're right. I looked yeah, up the yeah, and I saw I saw it on the credits of my second viewing. It's Angelo, yeah. it's Baldamenti himself, who I'm who I am a big, big fan of. So I was you very wanna impressed with elucidate that. upon that a little bit? That guy's a heavy guy. You wanna Okay, um my I'm most familiar. I mean it's, it's not he's done many, many um, uh, sorry, he's composed a lot of scores for a lot of directors, but I am most familiar with his work uh with David Lynch, who I'm a big fan of. So that's how I'm most familiar with him. Yeah. Me too. I thought I honestly thought you might know some deeper cuts. Um I'm right there not with you. The, not off the top of my head. Not off the top of my head. No. And anyone that's listening to this podcast that doesn't know who David Lynch is, yo man, get your life together. You better start taking notes. Um Rating. People probably know about him, but they need to know about Bob Balaban, or at least this one film that that one guy did. It's fucking important. This is, you know, this movie was made for $3 million and it only made like 600,000. Like this movie lost a shit ton of money, you know? And that's one of those, I feel like when that happens, it gets shit on by everybody somehow. Yeah. You know? Sure. Sure. It's like if, if, if the studio takes an L, they purposely shit on it and and blackball it. You know what I mean? Would that be to just uh, query you two there? Uh, 1989. This was you know made put out. Uh, 1989. We're talking a lot of like uh, action. You know Arnold Schwarzenegger mega yeah. mega blockbusters. Yeah, would have got lost underneath all that. Maybe. Oh yeah, it would have definitely gotten lost underneath that. And well, this is uh, a Canadian film too. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. This is a. Uh, a little too it's too advanced for its time if this would have came out like the year after fucking pleasantville would have came out it would have been phenomenal and everyone would have known about this film but it's a black comedy before black comedies were big is before works or anything if this would have come out in 1999 it would have been a fucking blockbuster i guarantee yeah, it definitely yeah. would have been. it was 10 years ahead of its time Absolutely. It has developed a, like uh, Cannibal the Musical, which we touched on the last episode, it has developed a cult following uh, to this day. So I strongly recommend joining the cult, definitely. For sure. All right. Um, ratings. We're doing. Yeah. Set do, it it. do it, man. Yep. Um, this is hard. I have not thought about this. I got to go off the cuff. Um. I and what do you like? In it, what do you, what do you like in it too, as well, please? What do you like in it too? Please? Right, right, right. That's what I'm trying to think of. So okay. I got a rating, but I mean, this this is. No, I already did that one. This is. Um, I might have to go. I might have to. I don't think I've said this one. I gotta go herpes because. This is something that once you see it, if you are a fan of horror, you will carry it with you forever. You carry it with you forever. And it's that important. But mm-hmm. there are there are so many people that overlook it, don't that that take it for granted, that don't realize what it is. That, you know, will bang people with no rubbers because they aren't worried about getting the herps. Because yeah. that person is not inflamed at the moment and they can't see pussy sores on their genitalia. However, it's always there and it's fucking important. It's influential. Um, 
And if you're a horror fan and you see this movie, I mean, the 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 Baron just saw this for the first time. And I guarantee you, he carries this with him forever. This is a watershed moment in your man's life. And he's been a horror fan his whole fucking life. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This Great. is an important movie, a formative movie for me and and uh, and the Reverend. I know it to a moral certainty. This is not something that goes away. You can treat it. You can deal with it. It's not always there, seemingly, but it is always there. This is an important one that people kind of don't don't give enough credence to. Uh, nine out of ten. Nine out of ten and herpes. Nice. How about you, uh, Baron? I will liken it to... See, the fugue state, the dream state, uh, really took me about this film. And uh, so, and it is like watching a dream as well. You know it's intentional, but it's not uh, displayed in the uh, the typical way as well, this type of scenario, you know what I mean? In your home life, especially when you're a kid, your parents, uh, whatever they may do, you may you will see them as monsters, you know, whether, uh, you know, depending on... Uh, on how bad it doesn't matter how bad or good they are in this kid's state these dreams are you know they're quite serious and this movie does have a serious message as you pointed out with consumerism there i'm likening it to parasomnia which is effectively uh the uh a fugue state it's a state of existing in a waking dream and to that end i was very impressed by it i did watch it again and i would watch it again uh after this, I am giving it a seven and a half there, Reverend. Nice. Uh, overall, to put a number on this, I'm going eight. I think this is kind of like the Lyme disease of the films that we've covered so far because uh, not many people have been able to di- enjoy this and been affected by this. But it's on the rise, so that's good. And also, you may have seen this at some point in your life, and I feel like a lot of horror nerds have seen this at some point in their lives, but they never really talk about it or think about it the way that they do with other more iconic films, but it still affects them. Gonna get you in the end, I'm going eight on this one, just because maybe the lack of violence. Surprised I went higher than you did. I'm really surprised at that. It's cool, though. I respect it. I love it. Respect the reverend. Of course. Of course. Of course. All right, guys. Well, I think that that's going to wrap up this episode. Uh, thank you. It is an honor and a pleasure, as always. Um, do you guys want to sign off here? Do we have picks for next week, or are we going to wait? Well, we'll announce them whenever we announce them. Okay. But let's just say goodbye to all of our friends all of our neighbors in the wonderful Patreon of podcast listening assholes. Um, <laughs> y'all going to hell. That's from the Reverend himself. From the commander, um, stay sexy and uh, brush your teeth, eat your vegetables. And from the Baron, uh, good day, good night, and goodbye. And remember the darkest place is always within the mind. <laughs> Yes!